and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 69. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Well, it's been a hectic week for the Drabblecast. I upgraded our publishing software and it changed our feed URL, which is about the worst thing that can happen to a podcast. But thanks to listener Tom Baker, I think we have the problem worked out and the old feed goes to the new feed. But if you have a problem getting the Drabblecast, you need to go to our website, www.drabblecast.org, and resubscribe. If you're not having problems, fantastic. Don't worry your pretty little mustache about it. Just kick back and enjoy the Drabble. Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words. Send yours into Drabblecast at yahoo.com. This week's story is called Sacrifices by Abigail Hilton. Abigail is a nurse working on her master's degree. Her story, Blood of the Dawn, appeared in the April 2008 edition of Beyond Centauri, and her book, The Prophet of Penamandora, will be released on patiobooks.com within the next month or so, so keep an ear out for it. Sometimes you have to make sacrifices to do what you love. When people ask me if it's difficult to maintain a small zoo, I tell them the tiger is the most expensive. Her name is Isis. I haven't raised my prices in years. The parents and kids wouldn't come then, and they're the reason I do this. I watch the kids in the petting pen. I watch to see if they pull a tail or chase a peacock, early signs of a violent nature. Little sadists, I think. But I'm making the world safer. One sacrifice at a time. Our feature story this week is called The Storyteller by Saki. Drabblecast regulars know that I'm quite fond of British writer Hector Hugh Monroe, who used the pen name Saki around the turn of the 20th century to write weird, witty, and often macabre short stories. Monroe fought in World War I, although he was 43 and officially over age. More than once, he returned to the battlefield when officially still too sick or injured to fight. He was in France, sheltering in a shell crater in November 1916, when he was killed by a German sniper. His last words, according to several sources, were, Put that damn cigarette out! Could have been worse, I guess. So, without further ado, The Storyteller, by Saki. It was a hot afternoon, and the railway carriage was correspondingly sultry, and the next stop was at Templecombe, nearly an hour ahead. The occupants of the carriage were a small girl, and a smaller girl, and a small boy. An aunt, belonging to the children, occupied one corner seat, and the further corner seat on the opposite side was occupied by a bachelor who was a stranger to their party. But the small girls and the small boy emphatically occupied the compartment. Both the aunt and the children were conversational in a limited, persistent way, reminding one of the attentions of a housefly that refuses to be discouraged. Most of the aunt's remarks seemed to begin with don't, and nearly all of the children's remarks began with why. The bachelor said nothing out loud. Don't, Cyril, don't, exclaimed the aunt as the small boy began smacking the cushions of the seat, producing a cloud of dust at each blow. "'Come and look out the window,' she added. 
The child moved reluctantly to the window. Why are those sheep being driven out that field? he asked. Well, I expect that they're being driven to another field where there's more grass, the aunt said weakly. But there's lots of grass in that field, protested the boy. There's nothing else there but grass. Mm, perhaps the grass in the other field is better, suggested the aunt fatuously. Why is it better? came the swift, inevitable question. Oh, look at those cows, exclaimed the aunt. Nearly every field along the line had contained cows or bullocks, but she spoke as though she were drawing attention to a rarity. Why is the grass in the other field better? persisted Cyril. The frown on the bachelor's face was deepening to a scowl. He was a hard, unsympathetic man, the aunt decided in her mind. The smaller girl created a diversion by beginning to recite On the Road to Mandalay. She only knew the first line, but she put her limited knowledge to the fullest possible use. She repeated the line over and over again, in a dreamy but resolute and very audible voice. It seemed to the bachelor as though someone had had a bet with her that she could not repeat the line aloud two thousand times without stopping. Whoever it was who had made the wager, it seemed, was likely to lose the bet. "'Come over here and listen to a story,' said the aunt, when the bachelor had looked twice at her and once at the communication cord. The children moved listlessly toward the aunt's end of the carriage. Evidently, her reputation as a storyteller did not rank high in their estimation. In a low, confidential voice, interrupted at frequent intervals by loud, petulant questionings from her listeners, she began an unenterprising and deplorably uninteresting story about a little girl who was good and made friends with everyone on account of her goodness, and was finally saved from a mad bull by a number of rescuers who admired her moral character. "'Wouldn't they have saved her if she hadn't been good?' demanded the bigger of the small girls, it was exactly the question that the bachelor had wanted to ask. "'Well, yes,' admitted the aunt lamely, "'but I, I don't think they would have run quite so fast to help her "'if they hadn't liked her so much.' "'It's the stupidest story I've ever heard,' said the bigger of the small girls, with immense conviction. "'I stopped listening after the first bit. It was so stupid,' said Cyril." The smaller girl made no actual comment on the story, but she had long ago recommenced a murmured repetition of her favorite line. "'You don't seem to be a success as a storyteller.' The aunt bristled in instant defense at this unexpected attack from the bachelor in the corner. "'It's a very difficult thing to tell stories that children can both understand and appreciate,' she said stiffly. "'I don't agree with you,' said the bachelor." "'Perhaps you would like to tell them a story, then,' was the aunt's retort. "'Tell us a story, yes,' demanded the bigger of the small girls. "'Well, once upon a time,' began the bachelor, "'there was a little girl named Bertha, who was extraordinarily good.'" <laughs> The children's momentarily aroused interest began at once to flicker. All stories, it seemed, were dreadfully alike no matter who told them. She did all that she was told. She was always truthful. She kept her clothes clean, ate milk puddings as though they were jam tarts, learned her lessons perfectly, and was polite in her manners. Was she pretty? asked the bigger of the smaller girls. Well, not as pretty as you, said the bachelor. 
but she was horribly good. There was a wave of reaction in favor of the story. The word horrible in connection with goodness was a novelty that commended itself. It seemed to introduce a ring of truth that was absent from the aunt's tales of infant life. She was so good, continued the bachelor, that she won several medals for goodness, which she always wore, pinned onto her dress. There was a medal for obedience, another medal for punctuality, and a third for good behavior. They were large metal medals, and they clinked against one another as she walked. No other child in town where she lived had as many as three medals, so everybody knew that she must be an extra good child. Horribly good, quoted Cyril. Mm-hmm. Everybody was talking about her goodness, and the prince of the country got to hearing about it, and he said that she was so very good she might be allowed once a week to walk in his park, which was just outside the town. It was a beautiful park, and no children were ever allowed in it, so it was a great honor for Bertha to be allowed to go in there. Were there any sheep in the park? demanded Cyril. Nope, weren't no sheep. Why weren't there any sheep? came the inevitable question arising from that answer. The aunt permitted herself a smile, which almost might have been described as a grin. Well, there weren't no sheep in the park, cause the prince's mother once had a dream that her son would either be killed by a sheep, or else by a clock falling on him. For that reason, the prince never kept a sheep in his park, or a clock in his palace. The aunt suppressed a gasp of admiration. Was the prince killed by a sheep, or by a clock? asked Cyril. Nah, he's still alive, so we don't know if the dream will come true or not. Anyway, there weren't no sheep in the park, but there were a lot of, uh, little pigs running all over the place. What color were they? Uh, they were black with white faces, white with black spots, black all over, gray with white patches, and some were white all over. The storyteller paused to let a full idea of the park's treasures sink into the children's imaginations. Then he resumed. Well, Bertha was rather sorry to find out that there weren't no flowers in the park. She'd promised her aunts, with tears in her eyes, that she would not pick any of the kind prince's flowers, and she meant to keep her promise. So, of course, it made her feel silly to find out there weren't no flowers to pick. Why weren't there no flowers? Well, because the pigs had eaten them all, said the bachelor promptly. And gardeners had told the prince that you couldn't have pigs and flowers, so he decided to have pigs and no flowers. There was a murmur of approval at the excellence of the prince's decision. So many people would have decided the other way. There were lots of other delightful things in the park. There were ponds with gold and blue and green fish in them, and trees with beautiful parrots that said clever things at a moment's notice, and hummingbirds that hummed all the popular tunes of the day. Bertha walked up and down and enjoyed herself immensely, and thought to herself, If I were not so extraordinarily good, I should not have been allowed to come into this beautiful park and enjoy all there is to be seen in it. And her three medals clinked against one another as she walked, and helped to remind her how very good she really was. Just then, an enormous wolf came prowling into the park to see if it'd catch a fat little pig for its supper. What color was it? asked the children, amid an immediate quickening of interest. Mud-colored, all over, with a black tongue and pale gray eyes that gleamed with unspeakable ferocity. Well, the first thing that it saw in the park was Bertha. Her pinafore was so spotlessly white and clean that it could be seen from a great distance. Bertha saw the wolf and saw that it was stealing towards her, and she began to wish that she'd never been allowed to come into the park. 
She ran as hard as she could, and the wolf came after, with huge leaps and bounds. She managed to reach a shrubbery of myrtle bushes, and she hid herself in one of the thickest of the bushes. The wolf came sniffing among the branches, its black tongue lolling out of its mouth, and its pale gray eyes glaring with rage. Bertha was terribly frightened, and thought to herself, If I had not been so extraordinarily good, I should have been safe in my town at this very moment. However, the scent of the myrtle was so strong that the wolf could not sniff out where Bertha was hiding, and the bushes were so thick that he might have hunted about in them for a long time without catching sight of her. So he thought he might as well go off and catch a little pig instead. Bertha was trembling very much at having the wolf prowling and sniffing so near, and as she trembled, the medal for obedience clinked against the medals for good conduct and punctuality. Wolf was just moving away when he heard the sound of the metals clinking and stopped to listen. They clinked again in a bush quite near him. He dashed into the bush, his pale gray eyes gleaming with ferocity and triumph, and dragged Bertha out and devoured her to the last morsel. All that was left of her were her shoes, bits of clothing, and the three medals for goodness. Were any of the little pigs killed? Nope, they all escaped. The story began badly, said the smaller of the small girls, but it had a beautiful ending. It's the most beautiful story that I ever heard, said the bigger of the small girls with immense decision. It's the only beautiful story I ever heard, said Cyril. A dissentient opinion came from the aunt. A most improper story to tell to young children. You have undermined the effect of years of careful teaching. Well, at any rate, said the bachelor, collecting his belongings as he prepared to leave the carriage. I kept him quiet for ten minutes, which is more than you were able to do. our story. We've featured stories about kids eating sharks and faces and whatnot. I felt we needed a little balance. Wild animals eating children. It happens. Sometimes you're fed to a tiger because you're bad. Sometimes you're eaten by a wolf because you're good. Being eaten by a wild animal is definitely one of the cooler ways to check out, though. Better than being shot by a sniper while you're bitching at your buddy to put out his cigarette. Feedback for episode 65, Old Clara's Favorites by Jonathan C. Gillespie. This was the story about the gourds that had the things in them. Pretty even split on this one. Camo Blamo said, I've got to give the main story a huge resounding meh. Notice I'm not canning it. It did everything it needed to to keep me listening. It just wasn't great. Chivalry Bean said, I like the story. It could have used a more terrifying moment. It was like Eep. Then he just ran away, almost as if he was not in a whole lot of danger as soon as he hit the steps going up. As always, we love hearing your feedback on stories. Join our discussion forums at www.drabblecast.org and get in on the chat. If you enjoy the Drabblecast, you should consider making a donation to us via the donation button on our website. You can donate once or subscribe for $5 a month to help us pair authors and bring you weekly weirdness. That's all for this week. Tune in next week for some more stories that are horribly good. 
The Drabblecast uses a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives license, which means you can't change it or sell it, but you can shut your kids up for about 10 minutes with it. Or anyone else. Our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you to watch out for clocks. Oh! 